Well, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you guys for uh, being here at Redemption Church this morning. Uh, you made it through the triathlon parking and the triathlon traffic uh, to be here, so thank you guys for being here. Um, my name is Reggie, and I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders uh, here at Redemption. And this morning, uh, we will be talking uh, again about 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I think your bulletins might have a different passage listed today. Um, but last week, this week, and next week, we'll all be, um, we'll spend all, all of those Sundays in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, sort of examining that passage from a couple of different uh, points of view. And so in just a few minutes, we'll dive in uh, and begin talking, begin talking about that again uh, this morning. This is part of our series called Set Apart, where we're looking at 1 Peter. We'll be looking at 1 Peter probably, I think, till the end of November, and um, looking at what God had to say through Peter to a specific group of people when Peter wrote this uh, letter, and how that directly relates to us as well, and how it continues to relate to us today. So uh, again, thank you guys for being here, and uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be present this morning. God, thank you that we can gather here around the name of your son, Jesus, that we can look at your word, that we can spend some time together examining exactly what it is you would have us see from your word. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we, as we talk, as we examine, as we move through this passage again, uh, Holy Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified. I pray that Christ would be lifted high. Holy Father, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. Father, I fully recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. So God, I pray that we would hear from you, even now that you would speak to our minds and hearts, that you would draw us to yourself as Christ is lifted high. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So last week, if you were here, um, you remember, but if you weren't, I'll tell you, I spent a good bit of time talking about two big themes that we see throughout the book of Peter. They occur over and over and over, and they're right here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 as well. And those big themes are the things of um, identity and the themes of Jesus, identity and the gospel, two big themes throughout the book of Peter. And so last week we looked at the danger that comes from not fully understanding our identity in Christ, and the danger for not fully understanding the gospel or even misrepresenting the gospel, um, and how dangerous that is to us as a church. This week, our focus in this passage is going to be a little bit different. Um, we're going to focus in on community. We're going to focus in on the family of faith. We're going to focus in on spiritual formation and what that looks for us as a group of people set apart by God, by the work of Jesus, for his own purposes, right? Set apart, this whole Series And so we'll be talking about our life together in as much as God has set us apart to be a people, uh, not just individuals, but a collective group of people that God has put us into, a group of redeemed and saved sinners set apart by God, given an identity by God, given a family by God, and given a purpose by God. So let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. Have you ever been in a setting where a group of people that you didn't naturally relate to accepted you as their own? Have you ever been in a situation cross-culturally 
or some other way to where a group of people that you didn't necessarily belong to or relate to accepted you as your own. The greatest example I can think of about this from my own life is, um, is the idea of adoption. Because I'm adopted, and so this hits pretty close home to me. Some of you guys may know this if you've been around uh, Redemption for a little while, but both of my biological parents died uh, tragically when I was eight years old. My father died on Christmas Eve of 1983, and my mother died about seven months later in the summer of 1984. And immediately after my mom died, I actually went to stay with a social worker for a few days while I guess they were determining where I was going to go and live. And and I, and I know that I was either going to go into the foster system or the town where I grew up actually had a children's home, Greenwood, South Carolina. It's called Connie Maxwell Children's Home. You might be familiar with it. But I knew I was going to one of those two places. On the day of my mother's funeral, I actually found out that I was going to live with some family members that I had never met before. I actually didn't meet them until my mother's funeral. And literally after the funeral was over, I got in a car and went home with them. Uh, having never met them, my parents never talked about them. They never came to visit. We never went to visit them. It was technically my uncle and my aunt, uh, but I didn't know them. But they welcomed me into their, own, into their home. A couple of years later, they adopted me, and I became part of their family, even though I didn't know them, didn't even know they existed, right? And so they saved me from a potentially bad situation, but they didn't just save me from something. They actually saved me to something. They saved me to their family. And I'll be honest with you, right? It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always pleasant. There was a long period of time where I felt like I didn't belong, like these people weren't really my parents. I wasn't really a part of their family. We didn't always get along. But that didn't change the fact that they took me and accepted me as their own, part of their family, took me from a bad situation and put me into a good situation, right? We look at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look first at verses 9 and 10. Um, verses 9 and 10. So if you want to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes this. He's writing this book. A few weeks ago, I talked about this. He's writing this book to a group of people um, that live in modern-day Turkey. Um, that's, that's where the churches were. Uh, then five different churches that are mentioned, I think, at the beginning of 1 Peter. He's writing this to them as they are about to face some persecution, probably already in the midst of some suffering. And so he writes to them, in, verse two, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." So there's this big statement that Peter's making about how God collectively takes his people and sets them apart. And so there are three things that we're going to look at. God sets his people apart into a family. God sets his people apart into a family that is to be uniquely focused on Christ. And the family that God sets us apart into exists for the purpose of spreading that focus on Christ to the world around those are three things we'll talk about. But first, God sets his people apart into a family, right? When God saved you, when God set you apart, according to 1 Peter right here, 
He didn't set you apart to be out there on your own as an individual. He set you apart to his family. It's a collective statement. It's a communal statement. It's a communal movement. It's not just an individual one. And so the danger for us in this church and in the world in which we live in, the danger for us is to assume that our faith is an individual pursuit. The danger for us is to assume that our faith is all about Jesus and me. And there's certainly an individual component to our relationship with Christ because that's what we talk about. It's a relationship with Christ. But it would be a mistake and it would be a danger to say that my walk with Christ is just about Jesus and me. The danger is to ignore the communal aspect of our faith and to turn Christianity into some kind of individual private pursuit. It's just Jesus and me. And I don't have to worry about anything else. One of the reasons that that's such a danger for us is we live in a world and a society that's so focused on individuals and our own pursuit of our own pleasure and our own things and the things that we want at the expense of everything else. So it's a danger in the church as well. But that's not the reality of what Peter is talking about in verses 9 and 10. Look at the words again that he uses. He says, you're a chosen race, a group, a royal priesthood, a group, a holy nation, a group, a people for his own possession. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. It's collective. It's big. And there's three specific words that Peter uses here. Uh, He uses more than that, but three words that I want you to focus on. He uses the word race. He uses the words nation. He uses the word people. In Greek, they're the words genos, ethnos, and laos. They're the words from which we get genealogy, uh, ethnic or ethnicity, and laity, or the people. They're the same words that are used throughout the Old Testament to a certain extent, albeit in a different language, to define God's people. Uh, a, a chosen race, a holy nation, a set-apart people. And so Peter takes these ideas and he applies them to God's church. And he says, you, the church, where you are, you are God's people collectively. We're part of something bigger than ourselves, right? That's part of what Peter is uh, relating to these churches uh, that he's writing to. There's something going on here bigger than just you. You've been called to a collective faith, a faith that's about relationships, a faith that's about the family. And Peter uses these words, I think, to deliberately remind the people who are hearing this um, letter and reading this letter, to deliberately remind them that their walk with God is, in fact, a collective and a community thing. It's a family thing. That they were not saved and set apart and given grace to be out there on their own. But in fact, they were called to be part of the people of God, right? If you think of all the differences in this room, all the differences across our nation, all the differences across the world of people who uh, follow Christ, of churches all over the world, we're all different. But we all belong to the same family if we've been saved by Christ. And you are, whether you recognize it or not, whether you live like it or not, you are intimately by grace, by divine purpose, connected to everybody in this room and every believer in the world because of the death of Christ, if you are, in fact, a believer. You're not just an individualistic consumer of grace. You're not just an individualistic consumer of what 
this church or any other church has to offer. You're not just here to get your fix and to leave and to go back and to live a private life that's disconnected from everyone else. Because that's not part of the reason that God set you apart. In Western culture, we have these big boundaries between our private lives and our public persona. In my neighborhood, my house is about three-quarters of a mile into my neighborhood, maybe a little bit longer. So when I pull into my neighborhood, I'm passing houses all around. I go to my road. Uh, I live about as far back on my road as you can get to. And uh, I pass all these houses. And so when I'm going home in the afternoon, when I'm leaving work and going home in the afternoon, this is what I typically see. Right? I see a group of people who pull into their driveway, they open their garage door, they drive into their garage, and then they close their garage door before they ever get out of their cars. Right? That, that's what I see. I see a group of people who get out of their cars and they run into their house as fast as they can. And so when I come home, I'm kind of a rebel, kind of a bad boy like Ben over there. I leave my garage door open. I actually take my dogs for a walk around the block at night. In my neighborhood, it's very easy, even though our houses are right next to each other, even though they're... if I have to hold this microphone the whole time. I'll do my best. It's tragic that we could be a part of a neighborhood and not know our neighbors. It's tragic that we could be a part of a church and not be intimately connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ because that's not New Testament Christianity. That's not what Christ intended for his church. And so when Peter, when he talks about identity, he can't talk about identity in any other way than in a collective way. He doesn't say you're a holy person. He says you're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. And there is certainly an individual aspect to our faith, like I said a minute ago. And there's certainly a sense in which we are called to pursue personal holiness. And we should not ignore that call, that singular call to personal holiness and a personal relationship with Christ. But regardless of the sins that we find ourselves enslaved to, regardless of what we struggle with, regardless of what we're ashamed of and we want to hide, right? The church is part of the means by which the Holy Spirit leads us into holiness. The church is a gift. It's a, a gift from God for our own benefit. And we're intended to be a part of it, not only so that we might benefit, but so that we might build up the family of faith. We'll talk about that in just a second. But, but Peter in chapter 2 talks about stones being collectively built up into a house. We're here to collectively build one another up in the faith. And we're part of God's church. And as much as God has placed us here for his purposes, to build one another up. Right? And the church isn't supposed to take the place of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the Holy Spirit can certainly use the church to move us along in that pursuit of holiness. Holiness. 
lead us to increasingly submit all areas of our life to the lordship of Christ. Right? And that leads me to point number two, what I talked about a second ago. God sets his people apart into a family that is to be uniquely focused on Christ and Christ alone. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Let's look at them here. They say this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In these verses here, Peter is pondering and applying a couple of different Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus, that talk about the Messiah being a stone. Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I am the one who is laid a Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. In Psalm 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? In verses 4 and verses 6 that we just read, Peter calls Jesus that stone precious. Right? Think of the implications here. Peter, in quoting the Old Testament, and, and us knowing that the Old Testament points to Jesus, right? Jesus even said that all of Scripture points to him. So Peter, in quoting the Old Testament, in being led along by the Holy Spirit, is writing, and he says, Jesus, this stone is precious. And so there's a sense in which Peter, as he's writing to these believers, as he's writing to these churches, is calling them to focus on and to recognize and to value Jesus as incredibly precious. The, the one thing that brings value and beauty to God's church above everything else, focus on that, focus on Jesus, right? If God sees all things as they truly are and knows all things as they truly are, if God is telling us to value and treasure Christ, well, then maybe we should listen. Maybe we should recognize what Peter is saying, that Jesus is ultimately precious and valuable, right? God treasures Christ above all things. Peter says here, focus on Christ is something precious and valuable because there's nothing more valuable than Jesus. And inasmuch as Peter is urging these believers to do that, inasmuch as God is recognizing and God is directing through Peter to say that Jesus is valuable and precious, we too should recognize that and focus our lives around that because our community, this community of faith that's set apart by God, is to be uniquely focused on Christ and Christ alone. Look, in the South, we already get this whether we recognize it or not. We already understand what it means for a group of people to be focused on and centered on something, right? Just look at college football. If you're not a football person, you still see this. You see this all around every Saturday in the fall, 
There are groups of people who relate together based on how much they value and how much they love a football team, right? And I'll be honest with you, I'm a South Carolina Gamecock fan. I have been since the day of my birth, I think, uh, and that'll never change, but it also means I'm used to being disappointed on a regular basis. Amy's father was a letterman and the team captain at the University of Georgia in swimming, a different sport than um, football, but Amy's family loves the Georgia Bulldogs, and on Saturdays, they're actually obsessed, I think, a little bit about the Georgia Bulldogs. And there's this unique relationship among football fans where you can instantly relate to someone you don't know simply by the fact that they like the same team that you do. Because you both value, because you both treasure, because you both think the Georgia Bulldogs are precious. I do not think that. Because you both think that the University of South Carolina Gamecocks are precious. You, you, there's this unique connection. There's this unique thing that you have. Your relationship is sort of defined by that. How much more... Should our relationships within the body of Christ be uniquely connected by and defined by the fact that we value something so much greater than a football team? We value the thing that is most precious, the person that is most precious. We value and treasure and focus on the greatest treasure there is, the person of Jesus. And that's exactly what God intended for his church. That's exactly what Peter intended for these people as he's writing to them and saying, Jesus is precious. He's a precious cornerstone. Build your life on him. Focus around him. This plays out a different way, actually, in this passage as well. Look at uh, verses 1 through 3 with me. Um, Verses 1 through 3 of 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Right, Peter, here he says long for. He talks about tasting, longing for the milk of God's word. Because in it you taste the goodness of the Lord himself. So Peter, Peter says long for this, right? That's an emotional thing. That's, that's not just a knowing, that's, a, that's the pursuit. That's the desire for something. That's, that's more than just knowing. That's, that's like feeling and pursuing. Knowing that the Lord is good and tasting that the Lord is good are not necessarily identical. But Peter here says, pursue, pursue that. So when we speak of focusing our life on Christ and treasuring Christ, we mean something that goes beyond mere knowledge. We mean something that goes beyond just knowing, right? And so verse 1 makes it clear that this emotional, affectional treasuring of Christ actually changes the way we act. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and instead treasure what Christ has to offer. Put away those things. Put away those things that would divide you and tear you apart and instead treasure the thing that brings you together, right? When you treasure Christ above all, you never need to be deceitful. Why why would you? You never need to pretend about anything. Why would you if you have an infinite, all-satisfying treasure in Christ? Why would you envy anyone because you have Christ? Why would you slander and be malicious because you have Christ, right? Treasuring Christ is a gift, something that Peter is calling these people to, to help us flee and to turn from things that would be sinful and to value Christ 
instead. So when we focus our lives on Christ, we have a unique focus on Christ. We, we realize together just how valuable Jesus is. That Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And it leads us to live together in a new and a changed way. Right? When we center our lives on Christ, when we focus our lives on Christ, we don't have time to be focused on things like envy and malice and deceitfulness and hypocrisy and all these other things because we're focused on Christ. When we as a body are focused on and centered around Christ, we begin to see the reality of the statement that we are a, a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, People who belong to God, who are uniquely identified by God, who relate together in a new way because of Jesus. Now, here's a little bit of a reality check uh, for us. A couple of things just, just to um, dive into. A couple of implications from this passage that I want to dive into just for a second. This idea that those who are set apart by God are a new race, a new ethnicity, and a new people group. This idea has huge implications for how we relate to one another in the church. But it also has huge implications for the racial and ethnic realities of our world. Right? It would be an enormous mistake. An enormous mistake for us to misunderstand this passage here and say that race and ethnicity and people group differences don't count in the body of Christ because Christians are to be colorblind. That would be a misinterpretation of this passage. Now stay with me on this. That's not what this verse means. Because God did not create the indescribable abundance of differences in the world simply for us to ignore them. In fact, if you turn over to the book of Revelation, those differences are celebrated when all of God's people are gathered together to worship him. When in a glorified state, People are worshiping our Heavenly Father, and it's said of them, people of all nations, all tribes, from all over the world, are gathered to worship our God. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Let me just read that for you. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Same language that Peter's using, right? What this verse does mean, what First Peter is telling us, is that, those, um, is that the supreme trait of the new Christian race that Peter is talking about is the trait of treasuring Christ and being focused on Christ and valuing Christ above all else. Right? And, and that trait has a transforming effect on all races, all ethnicities, all people groups, all cultures. But it does not diminish, nor does it devalue any race or ethnicity or people group. As we focus on Christ, right, this unique Christ-centered focus, it exposes our differences either as Christ-belittling sins to be forsaken and repented of, or exposes our differences as Christ-reflecting treasures to be valued. Right? Focusing on Christ does not make us blind to differences. Rather, it leads us to celebrate that we all are made in the image of God to glorify God and to build one another up in the body of Christ. And it does not matter what our differences might be. These differences serve the larger unifying identity 
of what it means to focus our life on Christ. What's new about the Christian race that Peter is talking about is that the infinite value of Christ is reflected by each member differently. Therefore, the differences are not negligible, and they are extraordinarily valuable to the body of Christ. One of my favorite theologians, uh, speakers, this is where I really need my other microphone, um, is a person named um, Trillia Newbell. And uh, Trillia Newbell just wrote a book called God's Very Good Idea. She's a, a theologian. She's an author, a speaker, writer. She works for the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And she just wrote this book, like I said, God's Very Good Idea. May I read you a passage from this book? I uh, asked my daughter yesterday to read this book, my nine-year-old daughter, Laurel, and she approves of it. So I'm going to take a minute and just read something from it. Jesus welcomes anyone who asks him to forgive them. And when Jesus welcomes someone, he welcomes them into his family forever. He welcomes people who like reading and people who like riding bikes. He welcomes people with darker skin and people with lighter skin. He welcomes people with curly hair and people with straight hair. God's family is called the church. Your church friends are your brothers and sisters, your wonderful and colorful church family. And you can enjoy loving them and loving God with them. This is God's very good idea. Lots of different people enjoying loving him and loving each other. God made it. People ruined it. God rescued it. God will finish it. Right? God's very good idea is to take people, regardless of their ethnicities, regardless of their race, regardless of their people groups, regardless of their culture, and make a big family. Make a big family that's set apart for his purposes and what he would have us set apart for. To build one another up into a royal priesthood where, where, where Christ is reflected as we're together, as our differences play out um, play out in the body of Christ in a very real and a very good way. Right? And so just so we're clear, God sets us apart with all of our beautiful differences into a family. And regardless of our differences, that family is to be uniquely focused on Christ. That unique focus should lead us to, together to strive to see Jesus as precious and to pursue a unique Christ-centeredness because of the death of Christ and because of what Christ has done for us, right? We have but one hope. It's the living reality of a crucified Savior who suffered in our place because we're sinners, who lived a perfect life, who died as a sacrifice on our behalf, who carried our guilt and shame and nailed it to the cross, right? Who, whose righteousness we have in, our own, in place of our own sin, whose sacrifice caused us to be adopted into a big family that God set apart for his purposes, right? Jesus himself, the good news that Jesus brings is the most precious gift the church has been given. So let us strive together to know Jesus, to know his good news. Let's strive together to speak the truth of Jesus and to speak the truth of the good news of Jesus into every aspect of our life, down to the very mundane and everyday things. Let's strive together as a church 
as missional communities, as DNA groups, as friends, Let's, as spouses, to, to grow in the faith and the gospel as we regularly acknowledge our sins with one another, that we are fallen. Let's confess those to one another. Let's grow in the faith as we acknowledge that Jesus extends grace not only to us, but to anyone else who might sin and fall as well. Let's grow in faith in the gospel as we remind one another of the good news of Jesus, how precious it is, and let us speak it and remember it and proclaim it to one another regularly. Let's grow in the faith of the gospel as we get real with one another and put away hypocrisy and put away slander and malice. And acknowledge that we're all just sinners who are saved by God's grace, who need one another, who need one another in this family to be built up into a house that reflects the glory of Christ. Let's, let's just be real with one another for a little bit and say, the gospel is good news, and every area of our life needs to be affected by the gospel. And more than likely, there are areas of your life and there are areas of my life that the gospel is not speaking into right now. So let's just get real with one another. Let's speak the gospel. Let's strive together to speak the gospel to one another, to encourage one another in the gospel, to call us to faith in Christ. Let's value and treasure Christ above all else. Right? The, this is the final point here. The, the community, the family that God sets us apart into exists for the purpose of spreading that focus on Christ to the world around Verse 9, let me read it again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we center our lives around Christ, we'll begin to understand the excellency of his death for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, his glorious saving work, and building and setting aside a new race of people who treasure Christ above all else. With all of our beautiful differences, treasuring Christ above all else. Right? And why does Christ do that? Why, as we focus on that, why does that happen? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We exist that our focus on Christ with all of our beautiful differences, would extend beyond our world, would extend beyond our walls to the world around us. We exist as a people on mission to proclaim how excellent Christ's death was, the good news of Christ both for our salvation and theirs. We're not here just to offer the world a system of redemption. We're actually here to offer the world a redeemer a Savior, and may God keep us faithful to that task. May we be a people that understand that God has placed us into this community together. May we be a people who understand that this community, with all of our differences, all of our beautiful differences, are to be uniquely focused on Christ. And may we understand that that focus on Christ is not just for us, is to extend beyond our world, I mean beyond our walls, to the world around us, that that focus on Christ may go forth. We're going to enter into a time of response, and we do this every Sunday here at Redemption. It's a time where we sit back and, and, um, and we close our time together 
by responding to what Christ is doing in our hearts and minds. In a minute, the band will come back up and uh, continue to lead us in worship, give us the opportunity to worship by singing. You have the opportunity to uh, worship through giving, to continue worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can do that. We have an opportunity uh, to worship by and, and to respond by sitting where you are, reflecting maybe on what the Holy Spirit is doing in your hearts and minds this morning. Uh, there'll be some people in the back that you can pray with if you want to grab somebody and, and, and pray for something. And also during this time, we have an opportunity to celebrate communion. It's an opportunity for you to come down the middle aisle here um, to, to go to one of these places and to tear off some bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We take communion uh, because Scripture tells us that when we do so, we are remembering um, what Christ has done for us, and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe Him. So if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, whether you're a member of redemption or not, um, God gives you the freedom to do so. We would encourage you to come and take communion. But knowing in doing so, you're remembering what Christ has done and proclaiming that you believe it. And if that's not something that you can do, I would encourage you to sit where you are and, and just sort of reflect and understand what we're saying. Uh, we're not trying to call you out. We just don't want you to come and do something that you can't, can't say that you believe. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue on with that time of response. God, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross, that we all can be in this room, and we can come from different places with different experiences and still be related together by the work of Christ on the cross. We can be uniquely focused on you and what you would have for us. God, I pray even now as we continue to worship, as we continue to respond, that you would continue to draw us to yourself, that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds, that Christ would be lifted high, and that we would value Jesus above all else. God, we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.